Yeah, where's it coming from? Let's find out. Welcome to the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Barbara Fisher, and with me is Morgana. And tonight we're talking with Teresa Racer and Brian Clary. They are both investigators for the Spectral Research and Investigation Group out of Huntington, West Virginia. And Teresa writes Teresa's Haunted History of the Tri-State Area blog, which is Amazing, and I know I screwed up the title, but I'll write it in the show notes correctly. Welcome. Thank you. See, I told you my I told you my intros were crap. You did so. not. Trust me. <laughs> it's fine. So this is a historic occasion. I realized this right before I hit record. This is the first time we've had four West Virginians on the show at the same time. Uh, so probably, I don't know, the world's going to end. The internet will go out or something. Something terrible. You got my uh, moonshine and my basset hound nearby. All right. Well, that's perfect. So we're good. I that also is... have my dog <laughs> and my sarcasm. <laughs> there you go. All right. So, Teresa, you're the one that I found first before I found the ghost hunting group. And I found you because I was looking up West Virginia ghost stories and your blog was like, I think the first one that came up. Oh, that's and, awesome. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was. I'm pretty sure it was. And I was reading it, and um, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, there's stuff that I did know. I knew about the um, workmen from the Capitol, the, the state Capitol, mm-hmm. um, because I grew up in Charleston. And then I knew about uh, the one in Huntington, the dentist's office. That Dr. story. Yeah. yeah, I knew about that one. And because I lived in Huntington for a long time. And I remember the um, the disappearing hitchhiker in Huntington because I was very upset that I lived there for so long and never found her. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. We used to go out in the rain and it just didn't it didn't do any good. It, it didn't matter. Um, very disappointing. So I was just, you know, how did you guys come up with the idea of starting a ghost hunting group? And. What kind of stuff do you do? Oh, I'll let Brian take that one since he's the founder of SRI. (laughs) Okay. So for many, many, many years, and we can probably go back. And if you're asking for like specific examples about how we got there, I can go over those as well. But generally what I wanted to do was I had talked to myself, or like talked to myself, that sounds really great. Um, But I had talked myself into it many, many years ago that I was about 15 or 16 years old. And my father and I did some um, paranormal investigation, stuff like that. We hit several of the big major like pay to plays in West Virginia. And at about the same time, 
that that came or when we were doing that was when like paranormal TV actually really started kicking out. So the early 2000s, when you saw like Most Haunted come on, I think that was in like 2001, 2002. I think Ghost Hunters started in something like 2004, Ghost Adventures right around the same time. So a lot of those guys came out at the same time. And that was when like the market got saturated where you had everybody kind of really getting into it. And there was like this almost, I wouldn't say it was newfound interest, but it was like, it became the the cool thing to do, I guess, for whatever reason it is. And it was like, that was one kind of big key. And so we had kind of gotten into it from that, but also some past experiences we had had as well. And for many, many years, um, my dad and I tried to like, form a group. We did for a little while. It was just a little like three man group called Kiowa Paranormal. And we did that for a little while and it really never got anywhere. And it was really hard to kind of make the connections and stuff like that, that you need when you get into like paranormal investigation and trying to get ends with different facilities and such like that. So we also had tried to like get our kind of folded into a lot of the other more established groups and stuff like that and had no success with that. So for a while, it just kind of like, you know what, it would just became a hassle. So we just kind of like backed off for a bit. But always the mindset that I had was if the situation permitted and if I got myself in a position where I could really plan out the strategy of doing it properly, I was going to go ahead and try to form a group. Well, 2020 came along in all of its infinite wisdom with COVID and all that stuff and we're all trapped in our houses and we can't really get out and do anything. And that entire time when you're sitting there not being able to do anything, you're thinking about all the things you wanted to. Well, here came that little thought process coming, creeping back up. And I said, you know what? Hell, I got nothing else to do. I might as well try now. So I uh, went through the process of trying to get a group established. I went through and created the iconography of SRI and stuff like that with the game plan of trying to take a paranormal group and kind of turning it a little bit on its head where we are complete. We are very much focused on two assets, the historical aspect. We are trying to really look at it from between Teresa, Teresa and I, we've had many, many, many years of doing this and Teresa, in and of herself, is a walking resource. Then, like with my training and stuff like that, that was another thing that I wanted to do was kind of bring the historical side and the research side into it more. Because you all know as well as I do, when we've come into the modern age of paranormal, some things about the field are severely lacking when it comes to the entertainment value. And by consequence, I feel that that is a little bit of a disservice to our clients and in the field itself, because if you're not taking the time to do all these back steps, you're not doing your job as this. So that was one part. The other part of it is the issue of the science element. You all know as well as I do, once again, where we're going with this, but you know the entertainment side, the entertainment side of paranormal TV and stuff like that. And I abhor it. It just drives me crazy. I do not want to sit here and in my spare time as a paranormal investigator, now keep it in mind that that obviously doesn't mean like 
for the average lay person that is interested in it just enough to watch TV, but will not go out to like Trans Allegheny and spend all night in the place because they don't have the gumption to do so. The TV aspect is not made for us, but it drives me crazy when we have these folks on TV and the next thing you know, everything's demonic. We're getting attacked. Uh, We have to show it up. We have to flare it up. We have to entertain it up to Mm -hmm. the degree. I am very much of the historic and the scientific side. I want to try for the best part, and Teresa and I are very much the same on this. We try our darndest when we get into this stuff to disprove as much as possible. And that's one of the things that I was mentioning to you all before the show that I'm having some struggles with with a specific client is trying to figure out how to do that. So that's one big thing that I really put a lot of emphasis in is the scientific side, trying to get as much good evidence as we can, because you all know we live in a very um, a very scrutinized field. And because of the scrutiny that is on us as paranormal investigators, we're already at a disadvantage. So the best thing we can do is to provide as much solid, as much tangible proof as we can to say that there is a possibility that there's a haunting. I'm not going to go out on a limb and say that somewhere just for seeing a few orbs on TV is going to be haunted. But I'm going to try to get as much information to give the client, the person that's responsible for the property, the best overall experience from us. And we can give them the information. And from that point on, hopefully we've done our due diligence to give them enough information and enough guidance. That way they know what they're dealing with in the future. That, that sounds great. You know, I, the, the whole demonic thing drives me mad. Um, it just, oh, it just makes me crazy. If demons uh, were as common as they are shown on TV, none of us would get any sleep at night. Right. <laughs> and know, also right? quit yelling at ghosts and trying to make them mad so they do something to you. That's just, mm-hmm. that's rude. It's bad manners and it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to do. 100%. I mean, if you actually believe a ghost is a dead human being, why are you treating them worse than you'd treat a living human being? You got a point. And why are you surprised if it gets mad? Mm Mm-hmm. Like, it also just doesn't seem to be something... It's not effective research to just yell at emptiness it's mm-hmm. just it I, i'm sorry it's, it's not theatrics. it is theatrics yeah. like you said it's it's the made for tv aspect of paranormal tv paranormal investigating and i i actually had to watch an episode of ghost adventures and <laughs> they did not do the historical research until like near the end of the show and i'm like what <laughs> You didn't even look into the phone. A lot of times, and a lot of times, a lot of that is outsourced. It's somebody, they have hired somebody to go in and do the research and stuff like that. And I'm not just like putting a finger on them because a lot of these groups are like that. Even the ones that you see are like on YouTube or whatever like that. A lot of them like outsource it and they will like contact the county historian or something like that and get the information. I mean, for my purpose, I would like to like know it myself before I walk into a facility so I know what I'm dealing with. Because if you don't know what you're dealing with, I mean, what's the point of even being there? And if you don't know what you're dealing with, period, then how are you trying to prove anything? Are you trying to prove or disprove at that point? Yeah. 
Yeah. Now, Teresa, you are a walking resource, according to Brian. And I agree. I agree because I've I've been reading your blog. So what is your background with all of this? Where, where, why did you start writing that huge blog? Um, it's, it started even before the actual blog itself has it exists today. Um, back in 2006, I had joined a, another local group that had just got started here in the Huntington area, Huntington Paranormal Investigations and Research. And, you know, we, we quickly grew to be, you know, a very active group. Um, but in our early days, you know, we were like any other group just starting out. And we were just, you know, trying to find like different local places um, to look into to, you know, maybe investigate. And so I started taking like these lists of haunted locations in Hun- or in Huntington, Ohio, all throughout West Virginia, Kentucky, the whole tri-state area. And trying to see if I could find some actual information about them. Just, you know, just real basic stuff at first, you know, to see, is it worth our time to even, you know, investigate this location? And it started out, it was just a private message board, you know, for our group where I would find a location. I would just do a real quick little write up about the history that I found, um, some links. And everybody encouraged me. They're like, you know, other you know, investigators would really find this useful um, and people will find this interesting. So I started uh, my own website. I was posting on there for a while and it got so big that this little free website that I was on couldn't handle the traffic anymore. Oh. So I had to change to the, the blogger format in 2011. And so I've been doing that, you know, ever since. And I mean, it's just it's it's fun for me. I love it. Um, I get so excited every time, like I learn something new and I wanted to share it with everybody else. <laughs> and that That's shines excellent. through like, yeah, your, your blog posts are like well-researched, really informative, but also like, there's just this sense of like enthusiasm that's coming <laughs> out of the page at you. Yeah. That, like I, yeah. that struck me and that I thought was like really cool. That is exactly why I contacted you. That, that enthusiasm and that you wrote really, really well because you know, people are like, history, oh my God. <laughs> and no, that that's not how I feel about history. I love history. And you write like that. You write like, oh, history is so cool. Listen to this. <laughs> this is awesome. And that's why we contacted you. So well done. Oh, well thank done. you. <laughs> and I don't even have a history background like Brian does. <laughs> um, I, have a, I have a degree in uh, paralegal studies. And so that kind of actually kind of led to it because I can do a mean title search. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that has helped so much over the years, you know, trying to find the history of some of these locations. Yeah, because you property titles, that's, that's a very important part of a historical <laughs> search on an area. So yeah, that is that is useful. You are a walking resource. You're yeah. a woman of many talents. And I will I will tell you all like the enthusiasm that you're getting from the readings that you all have done from her blog. She is the exact same way when it comes to looking at our pre-ups when we're looking at uh, looking at our preliminaries before we go to an investigation site. She gets really pumped to go through the information. Several of the ones we've recently done, like she spent a whole lot of time going through and doing some background research 
far more time than I had available to me at the time with all these grad school classes and whatnot. But it, you can even see when she is like going through and telling myself or my audio man or my uh, videographer, you can tell that the uh, passion is there for it. And she really uh, brings it out. And she does it even on the site. So when we go and she meets with clients and she does stuff with clients, she's the exact same way. That's so awesome. Like enthusiasm, professionalism, talent, and just like common sense is something that I feel is lacking in a lot of paranormal investigation mm -hmm. these days. Yeah. Yes. So walk me through an investigation. Like what do you guys do? Like how, how do you go about you get a you get a new case. How do you pick cases? So, Teresa, do you want this one or do you want me to? It doesn't matter. Uh, yeah, you can start off and I can fill in my okay, roles. Okay, we'll do it that way. So, investigations, how we go through and try to get clients is kind of a couple multi multifaceted approach. Um, usually, a lot of it's by word of mouth. Um, we get clients referred to us by other clients or from people that maybe know Teresa or myself and we reach we get a hold of them and they may even get a hold of us through Teresa's blog like uh, Miss Frame at the Heyman house up in Sutton. I know that's how uh, Miss uh, or Teresa got a hold of her was through her blog. So a lot of that is word of mouth. The other part is we will sometimes canvas out and we will make contacts to specific clients or people that have either businesses or uh, sometimes residentials. I don't do those very often. We may get into that later on and I'll explain exactly kind of why I'm kind of hesitant on those a little bit. But we typically will try to reach out to folks and what it typically is, is either Teresa, myself, or one of the other members will kind of canvas out emails or calls sometimes and try to put our name out there with clients to see if we can kind of uh, get working with them. A lot of places right now, and one of the hardest parts, and then I'll let Teresa kick in, one of the hardest parts with paranormal investigation right now is we are seeing such a monumental rise in paratourism that in a lot of cases we are coming into a place where now most places are going into kind of a pay to play atmosphere where it's, you come in, you pay them their fee and you, it may be a hundred, 150, $200 a night or whatever per person. You walk in there, you spend all night, you do your investigation and you have to leave. Well, that can be a blessing and a curse because it gets you access to a lot of different places. But on the flip side, if you are in a, a paranormal group that is not being uh, funded by television, that can be a little bit more difficult. So sometimes you kind of have to kind of work or work, try to find workarounds, try to make deals with uh, property owners or whatever like that to maybe do some advertisements for them and so on. And that kind of lends back to that paratourism element that's getting so huge now. And it's growing like here in Appalachia, especially I'm seeing it grow very quickly. I think, uh, I don't know what it was. I don't know if uh, some of these families up in these Appalachian mountains didn't get TV till recently or whatever. But when it seemed like the ghost hunters and ghost TV really kind of started kicking in, a lot of these groups really started, uh, <laughs> a lot of these people really started kind of jumping on board with the idea of bringing folks in 
and to do investigations. We've done several pay to plays. We've done some, we've done in the past year, we've done one residential, which was a nightmare. And then we have done a couple little private businesses and so on and so forth. And they are kind of, it's kind of a toss up on how you get into them. It's a, the contact process is very difficult and it's uh it seems easy. Um, especially to someone like me that just decided to get the idea to create a group. Oh yeah, I can work my way and I can contact people and everything will be hunky dory. It's not that easy. It's not. And as, and, I will tell you the other element is COVID has made things a lot more difficult to yeah. get into facilities, get into private businesses, which is where we do a lot of our work is dealing with like the smaller places, not the big pay to plays or anything like that. And it's very hard to get into them right now. Yeah. yeah it would be. I imagine so. I mean, it's hard enough to be like, hi, I want to see if you have ghosts in your business. Um, that on, that is already an interesting cold call. and then you've got and we're going to be there all night and it's a small place and is that we're going to be there is that safe for us and they're like i don't really know if i want you breathing on everything and what is this about there being ghosts in my house in my business Mm -hmm. yeah so i i can see how that would be really difficult those cold calls can go very very different ways they can be either uber excited or on the flip side one uh fairly um famous historic uh, building in the tri-state area here. I contacted them and they were like, no, we do not do that in our facility. I was like, I've seen other groups do it, but okay. Thank you for your time. (laughs) And sometimes it's just a matter of waiting a few months until a new uh, board is elected on some of these. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know that uh, a fairly famous haunted place here in town no longer allows anybody to investigate. Mm -hmm. Um, And that would be the Ridges, the old um, Athens Lunatic Asylum is now owned by Ohio University. And man, you don't even whisper ghost anywhere near those people. They will they will lose their cool. Very, very, very much so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it, they they don't. It's not easy to sneak in anymore either. Which I did do as a teenager. <laughs> I did do that as a teenager. I did. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did too. <laughs> yeah. That makes me feel better. My, this, my freshman year at Marshall, um, one of my best friends actually was going to school up there, and we went to visit her for the weekend. And she had a friend that she had met that got us in. That's awesome. Did you just do the main building, or did you do? Yeah. Um, well. We went inside the main building, but then we like kind of walked around the grounds of some of the other buildings. Yeah, we snuck into the TB ward and we got a tour of the main building because they turned it into artist studios while they were remodeling. And I was like, of course, put the artists in the crazy house. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, and one of the grad students actually had the keys. So we got to go all through and go down into the steam tunnels and everything. But the TB ward, no, that was breaking and entering. But it's torn down now, so you can't get it. Yeah, they won't let us do it anymore. It's it's gone now. Now it's an observatory. Which is awesome because we have a little tiny observatory. Mm -hmm. But yeah. There used to be one here in Cabell County. uh, There used to be one here in Milton, West Virginia, just up the road from us a little ways. That used to be the old uh, Morris Memorial Hospital. 
and it's being re- renovated right now, but that used to be the sneak-in spot where everybody here in like the local area <laughs> used to try to get in there and kind of check out the creepy hospital, but it's been, uh, they're renovating it and creating like a hotel or something like that now, so you can't even get near it. Oh, wow. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's turning into a hotel and like they're doing like a, it's going to be like a conference center. It's going to be all kinds of, all kinds of stuff now. But it used to be gentrifying our whole state. <laughs> what is it about? I, what is it about the ages of like fourteen to like twenty five, where you're like any creepy old abandoned building that's probably haunted? Everybody at one point is going to break in there. Just it's like that Rick and Morty meme. I'm in. Exactly. Yeah. Like you just do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Would you see anything creepy, Teresa? Um, I didn't see anything creepy, but I did have a weird experience up there. I don't know what building it was. It's got this has been like twenty years ago. <laughs> um, we were outside at the, and they said it was like where the the children were kept. I think that was the TV ward. Okay, so we the the guy that we were with and I were up on the hill where the the building was, and um, our two friends were down in the car because they were too scared to walk up there. And this, you know, of course, this is back in like 2001. <laughs> so my ghost hunting equipment was a micro cassette recorder that I had stolen from my mom's work and like, you know, a 35 millimeter camera. Anyway, they had the voice recorder down at the car and somehow they had pushed a button and it started like, you know, in rapid speed, like playing backwards. And so we heard them screaming. And so we started to like run back down the hill and I felt something like slip its hand into my hand. And it felt like a child's hand, like grabbed my hand before I ran down the hill. That's crazy. Yeah. That's not surprising. The TV board, lots of people saw stuff and felt and stuff. Felt stuff. And, yeah. Which is probably, I think that's really why they tore it down was they, one, they couldn't keep all of us out of there and to and the it was floor starting was to get, starting to go. Yeah, the floor was starting to go. And really they were scary. like, we're, we're not going to keep teenagers and college kids out of this building. And it's going to collapse on somebody one day. But I, I also think there was just too much creepy legends around it for them to want to renovate it into anything nice. Also, tuberculosis. Like, and tuberculosis. Hangs around a little bit longer than necessary. One would think that it was cleaned up. Hopefully, but you let me sneak in there. That's true. I wasn't too worried. I was mostly worried that you cut yourself on the broken glass or fall through (laughs) the floor or some kind of nonsense, but, or get arrested. You know, I run fast. I know you were with slow moving, like boyfriend. We leave that that one. (laughs) It's like bears. If you, if if you're faster than somebody in the party, you leave the the slow one behind (laughs) It's like the don't have to be the fastest, just don't be the slowest. <laughs> yeah. So, um, wh- what kinds of have you ever investigated place? I know, I know when I worked in Huntington, I worked in the theaters, um, the cinema, the Camelot, mm-hmm. and the um, the Keith. Yeah, I saw I on the blog that you wrote about the Keith, Teresa. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
We were extremely lucky. And I, I, as far as I know, we were the only group that was ever publicly allowed in there. We had some connections. And uh, when I was with Huntington Paranormal, we were allowed to investigate the Keith Albee. What did you, what did you find there? Um, we had some like real kind of minor experiences. Um, the place was so huge and so massive that it was, it was real hard, you know, to cover the entire thing. But we, like, we had our tech guys setting up our camera system and it was literally like three seconds before they flipped the switch to turn it on. Like all three of them saw a shadow just walk across the stage. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we're like, did you get it? Did you get it? They're like, no, we were reaching. You know, oh. For the, oh, yeah. Um, other than that, you know, I, I can't really remember what we caught. We might have caught some just basic EVPs, but I mean, nothing like super like, oh, my gosh, you know, this is groundbreaking. But it, it was a really awesome experience. Um, they gave us full run of the place. And, you know, so we got to go down in the basement. And oh, that, yeah they showed us like where the tunnel had, you know, been covered up and stuff. And, but I mean, that the basement goes like way beyond like where the present theater is. And so we were just walking around testing doors and we ended up in autism services in their main hallway. Oh, <laughs> oops. Like, oh That's and awesome. Was, yeah. So we're like, we waved at the camera. We're like, sorry. <laughs> 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 oh, I'm sure the security guard loved that. What? What is this? What happened? Who are these people? Oh, they just left. So okay. I hope I got in trouble for that one for not having the doors locked. <laughs> <laughs> maybe they, maybe they uh, told their supervisor you guys were ghosts. It could be. <laughs> what kinds of uh, other investigations have you done? You, you, you've done one residential, and that was nightmarish. Yeah, do you want a little bit of an explanation on that one? Because yeah, it's interesting. I, I must know I'm I'm was. deeply curious. <laughs> yeah, so, I want to know about this nightmare. Yeah, I'll let Teresa kind of jump in as well on this. The residential facility that or the residential that we did was a small family that lived up in the northern part of the state. And they contacted Teresa and I through our Facebook. They had previously had another investigation group that's a fairly well-known investigation group that it does a lot of their stuff on YouTube. And they had it probably, I think, maybe a month or two before we had went, they had been on there and they have an episode on, uh, on uh, YouTube and stuff like that. And I'll clue you all in afterwards because I don't want to put anybody on blast, obviously. But one of the things that came out to it was when they talked to us and the, it was the mother that really got a hold of us and she contacted us and it was almost, it was desperate. It was desperate for help or for some guidance or something like that. And then she started telling us these stories about um, their mother, their daughter having experiences with possibly being possessed and possibly like having like being attacked by a demonic entity in their home. Uh, talking about um, uneasy feelings, talking about a shadow man that would come up their uh, driveway and come to their property door and like knock on their door with no like, and then would not come up further. Um, the little girl talked about uh, having a friend 
that she used to talk to in a room that was not there and ended up being like a deceased owner of the property or something like that. Long story short, so because it involves a child, we, Teresa and I, probably against our better laurels, decided we would give it a shot. And it's a fairly good haul up to where we are, where we investigated in this place. Uh, so we, it was about three hours north. We drive all the way up there and we get there. And the residential case is interesting in the fact that the owners of the property won't go anywhere. They are worried that um, they will not let us in the house alone. Um, they are telling us that they've had previous groups or something like that that have stolen from them. We offer to even pay for a hotel room for them, and they will not take it. And it ended up being kind of a um, a disappointment in the fact that we drove so far to go and try to help these folks out. And I was, I'm not entirely certain if the help would have been received, if that uh, makes any sense. And then I'll let Teresa kind of jump in as well, because I like to share it with her. Yeah, um, a lot of times residentials are really emotionally taxing to begin with, because, you know, sometimes you have people that want you to come in because they want confirmation. Um, you know, that they're not scared, but they just, you know, they want to know that they're not crazy. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so you got people that, you know, think something's happening and aren't willing to accept that there might be a non-paranormal explanation. Mm -hmm. And then, unfortunately, you've got cases like this one where we were less of a paranormal investigation team and more like social services. Um Aww. Yeah, um, it, it was, and I don't want to say too much because, you know, this is a private family, but mm-hmm. if there was anything paranormal going on, it was going to be really hard for us to find it past all of the non-paranormal issues that were going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, like, some of the environmental issues were crazy and Brian can help elaborate on this. When we did an EMF sweep of this property, it was literally off the charts on our EMF meters, the entire house, not just up against the fuse box, not just up against the, you know, alarm clock or the power, you know, anything like that. It was the entire property was Mm -hmm. just being deluged with, EMF readings that were completely in the red, like to an unhealthy level. Um, so, and you know, that could have caused them to have yeah. all sorts of things happen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it can do things to your brain like mm-hmm. badly. And, you know, we tried to get them help like, hey, we, you know, we can get you an electrician to come in here. Let's get an electrician to come in and check it out. Well, yeah. no, we, we don't own the house. The, the owners won't let us have anything done. We're like, well, okay, you know, let's try this solution. Well, no, we can't do that solution either. And it was, it was so frustrating. Just anything we tried to do to help was, you know, was met with some sort of an excuse as to mm-hmm. how that was not feasible. Um, so it, it left us really emotionally drained, um, frustrated. But you know, I am glad that you know we were able to do this as a group. Um, cause we had, you know, our, um, 
we had our one of our younger members who's a newer member uh, we were training he was along for the ride so he got to see that you know this the side of investigation it's not always like oh it's a ghost um also we had a uh, guy that was working for a uh, online magazine and he had accompanied us on this investigation and so he really got a hands-on look at you know the the uglier side of this yeah yeah it's not all molder and scully and and yeah yeah and even when i i took some time before we went on that investigation because i had the family had told me of the uh, episode of uh, YouTube paranormal TV, what have you that they were telling me about. So I went through and I kind of did a preliminary look at it and stuff like that to just try to get a feel of what was going on. And you could honestly, like from the get go, you could feel it was something strange. So I even contacted the uh, group themselves and kind of got some information and stuff like that. And as well, and then we went through like the historical background of the home and stuff like that. And we found a few things, but nothing that really seemed to match up. But what Teresa was elaborating with like the high EMF levels, we're talking about levels that were in ranges that most electricians would consider hazardous. And they were throughout mm-hmm. the home. It wasn't just isolated one spot. It wasn't isolated in just a few spots, like around a router or something like that. Like what Teresa said, no matter where you went in the house, they were high. And like even the little girl's bed, when you went to her bed and you put the EMF detectors and multiple, mind you, not just ones, because we try to do multiple devices to kind of eliminate any kind of uh, problems with that. Even where you put the EMF detectors, where the girl, girl, little girl slept, like at the head of her bed on her pillow were so high, they were like off the charts. I mean, if you're susceptible at all, which I tend to suspect that was a problem for these folks, not to say that they didn't have anything paranormal, but my God, there would be no way for you to tell one way or another because of how bad their environment was. And we tried desperately to kind of get them along those lines to kind of understand it. But it's very hard doing those those type of investigations. I think we got there something like four o'clock or five o'clock and we were left by nine because of a lot of these ancillary things like that. Um, Even like walking out on their property, they have large electric lines. I mean, high voltage lines running right over their home. It runs up a cliff. It runs directly over their house. And even when you're in the yard, you could take your EMF detector and walk out in the yard and you're, 25 feet below the lines and you were still getting tremendous readings. And those, when you those think put of out it, a huge field. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's bad. Yeah. And the wife, from what I understand, can as uh, a stay at home mom, she doesn't get out a whole lot. So she's there getting flooded with it all the time. And the little girl, I think at the time was out of COVID out of school for COVID so she was getting flooded with it. So they had no escape. So they were kind of getting, they were getting hammered with it all the time. So even if they had something paranormal there, that was a secondary thing. I mean, it was just like, you folks have really got to understand that where you're living, and I'm not trying to like disparage the homeowners or anything like that, but it's not a safe environment for you. And it does have an effect. I mean, there are studies out there that talk about EMFs and how susceptible people are and stuff like that. And there's talks that it could be genetic. And if it's genetic, it would make complete sense that the mother and the daughter would be 
susceptible the same way. So, I mean, if they're having a lot of experiences, which they seem to be, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to kind of figure out what's going on. Yeah. So those are very hard. That was terrible. Yeah, we have a a neighborhood here in town that there's an electrical substation mm-hmm. right there. And there's all kinds of weird things that happen in that area. And, you know, even when we first moved here, like, you know, 25 years ago, I that was the first inklings that I had read that electromagnetic fields can produce seemingly paranormal events or amplify paranormal events Mm -hmm. and you know i i was like no wonder i can't sleep i'm a couple blocks from the substation and then you know i had friends who lived across the street from the substation and their mental health was really not very good Mm -hmm. and a large chunk of it i think was the you know the big electromagnetic field that was just right there Yeah, even like the property around these uh, homeowners or the people that were renting this property, from what we understood when we were there, Teresa and I both like had this talk with the owners, the whole block, and it's odd enough that those power lines ran directly above all of this block, and the entire block had uh, problems with like aggressive neighbors um, yeah. like hatred towards one another, um, paranormal uh, activity, quote unquote, and stuff like that. And it's it's pretty enlightening, honestly, when you think about like you can see like where it starts and you can kind of trace it along the lines that it can make a big difference for these people. And yet so many people have no clue and the, are under the assumption that their home is extremely haunted or they are under demonic presence or something like that when they have no idea that the environmental factors around them can affect them in that way. Yeah. Yeah. That was one thing I liked the uh, taps dudes for doing because they were plumbers and electricians and they would check for that and they'd be like, Hey, this is giving off a field that's not healthy for you. You should, here's Mm -hmm. how you can get it fixed. And I was like, yeah, that was that was the ghost hunting show when I was a teenager that I was like, okay, these guys are kind of legit. I appreciate yeah. this. Mm-hmm. Those yeah. when you mentioned earlier, you asked like just in general how our investigations actually mm-hmm. transpire. One of the things that I mean, the first couple things that we do is we do a general sweep of the building. We do EMF sweeps. I also like going through and especially if it's a quote unquote abandoned building, checking pipes for pressure checking mm-hmm. for water yeah. pressure on the property. Is there water or not? Because if there's water, there's a distinct possibility there could be pressure in the lines and that could cause the lines, especially if they're free floating lines in the walls to knock against the wall. And then next thing you know, people are thinking that there's ghosts knocking on the wall or whatever like that. So those are some things that we do initially is like just that general EMF sweep, kind of a water pressure sweep. We also do environmental sweeps of looking at barometric pressure and all of those things, just trying to get the best information that we can. We spend a lot of time looking at those things before we even get started with the paranormal stuff. And it's a good thing and it's a good practice. And I think it's something that's lost on a lot of, um, and then I can't say for certain, like these groups on TV or something like that aren't doing that, but it's not part of their presentation. 
a lot of groups are showing maybe, oh, okay, well, during their investigation, they're going around with an EMF, EMF detector. And they're going and they're checking the light sockets or whatever like that. And they're checking to see if there's EMF. The thing about it is, and the thing that I like to do, and I can't say that they're not doing it as well, but going through and checking before you even start the investigation. These are hot spots. Mm -hmm. These are things that we need to be aware of before we walk into that room so we can isolate those things out. And if we're able to isolate those things out, then we have a fairly good shot of saying that something there might, and I, I use that word very distinctly because I don't say haunted very often, it might have some kind of paranormal activity involved with it. So we try to spend a lot of time doing those preliminaries, going through and checking all the environmental factors that we can off the board first before we start looking for things that may not be. And I think that's something that is incredibly important that is sometimes lost. And it's generally lost on the the layman person that's interested in paranormal TV and stuff like that. And they don't realize, and a lot of people do not realize the amount of work that goes into it initially is looking at all of that stuff before, because they think everything can be crammed into this nice little 45 minute period. And then at the end of the time, the end of the night, everybody gets in their van and they go to the hotel, they do their uh, investigation and they do their, um, they do their evidence review. And then they go back and they visit the homeowners and everything is hunky dory. No, it's a lot of work. It's a whole lot of work. And it's, it's much more than uh, the television would uh, tend to lend you. And that's one thing that so many people have no clue on. It can take months to do investigation review. Yeah. If you do it properly, especially. Yeah. I mean, that's lots and lots of video and audio to review. Yeah. And just doing editing on a podcast, which is an hour and a half, two hours, three hours at the most, takes a lot of time if you're going to edit it. So I can imagine, yeah, I can imagine sitting there for eight hours of audio looking for an EVP. You got to listen to it again. Go go back to that section. Go back to this section. What what on that track? That track. And then if you have multiple recorders, then oh mm-hmm. uh, uh, yeah, multiple cameras, multiple camera angles, all that jive. Yep. Always. Yep, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. That is a huge amount. And the other thing that they don't see is is the amount of people they have working on the crew that they aren't showing. Mm-hmm. All the sound men, all the video men and stuff like that. Yeah. All the set up folks and stuff. Yeah. And then all the people who review all of the, the collected data, all the mm-hmm. recordings and, and videos and all of that, that takes, yeah, that takes a huge amount of effort. We did and one me, three weeks ago, and I'm still not done with the review. Yeah, I'm still going to Earth stuff, too. But, yeah, as for me personally, I mean, I'm never fully done with a case. Um, you know, we've always got the aftercare element to think about. You know, we want to, you know, make sure our client's okay. They're happy with, you know, our investigation. Most of the places that we've been to, we try to go back to multiple times mm-hmm. so we can learn from, you know, our first investigation. Okay, what do we need to concentrate on in the second investigation mm-hmm. um and, you know there's always new historical evidence that you come across mm-hmm. there's always you know something that maybe doesn't make sense first time around but then might make sense you know the second time right around. so 
our cases are never close to me. They're always, you know, we try to keep, you know, close contact with everybody we work with and mm-hmm. just make sure we keep, you know, that contact going and keep learning and about everything we came from that location. I think that's awesome. Like that adds like an element of not just like scientific accuracy, inquiry, and thoroughness, but also a very like human and compassionate element, like to making sure that your client is okay and satisfied and that like you've done everything you can to work with them on that case that I feel like on TV, you don't see that. You see them like show up once and be like, here you go. And then they leave and then they don't, you just don't see them go back. I, I don't know if they do or not. Maybe they do. I don't feel like they do. Yeah, it's it's had the added benefit that, you know, we've met some, you know, close friends and, you know, networking partners through this. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, several of the owners of businesses that we've investigated. I mean, like we're, you know, personal buddies with now, you know, mm-hmm. right. It's awesome. We the same thing has happened starting this podcast, which we also started in 2020 because we were cooped up in our houses. <laughs> and we're like, why what not? can we do? What can we do? With a lot of people. Um, not that so, what we do is in any way comparable to what you guys no. do. You guys are doing like real work. We're just, You're out in the field. We're just talking heads who like hang out with people in a virtual living room. But on the same purpose, you all are doing stuff to get the word out. I mean, yeah. I would say that. You all are doing a lot of work or the groundwork for us to get the work out to other folks. And to try to get the message out that there are still people in this that are interested in doing this and also are interested in doing it the right way because there's a right way to do this and a wrong way to do this. And it really depends on the person and the group that how the direction may go on it. So it's very it's very important that folks like you guys and folks like some of the other podcasts that we have kind of sat down with are making people know that, hey, there are folks out here that are legitimately trying to give the best possible like clues and ideas and stuff like that and theories on this. Without you guys pushing the message, it would make it our job much harder to even get to working with people. Yeah, that's, that's true. Fair. Well, hopefully somebody who listens to us will contact you and will be like, hey, I have a ghost (laughs) or I I have uh, weird noises or mm -hmm. yeah. I will gladly uh, field all calls. That's for sure. (laughs) So you investigated a wonderful sounding antique shop. Okay. Teresa, you want to lead off on this one? Yes, Teresa, tell <laughs> us about this antique shop. Okay, um, so we have been very lucky to have completed at this point two investigations at Deep End Antiques in Beckley, West Virginia. Um, now we met the owner, Travis, at the Beckley uh, Oddities Fair last September. Um, we had our little table set up advertising our group and he had a table set up across from us for his antique shop. He, uh, he sells a lot of crystals, um, pendulums, um, military antiques, just all kinds of awesome stuff. And so we got to talking to him and he's like, yeah, you know, my store's haunted. 
anytime you want to, you know, come down and investigate, you're welcome to. So, of course, we had to jump on the chance. Um, and, you know, like most of our investigations, uh, Brian and I beforehand like to kind of sit down um, video chat with the client, you know, and get kind of a real good understanding uh, about the location. Um, so, you know, he had all kinds of great information. This, uh, his antique store has built over the old pool of Honey in the Rock Motel in Beckley. Um, this hotel was built in the early 1960s and it started off as, you know, like a nice little, you know, place to rest in the area. But it quickly kind of went downhill. And in the past, oh gosh, it's it's been since at least the 1970s is when this thing started going downhill. Um, it became a haven for violence, um, knife fights, drugs, prostitution, just all kinds of nasty stuff. Um, so there was the, there was a lot of history there at this location. And so we were really excited to kind of get in there and kind of look at the history of the location itself. Plus kind of, you know, what kind of paranormal activity could we pick up from the items that were inside uh, the yeah. location as well? So that that's how we, we approached <laughs> the investigation. And I think I know what y'all are talking about, what we ended up finding <laughs> that we weren't expecting. <laughs> yeah. So I'll let Brian go take that because he, he saw it first. <laughs> okay. So I'm still like, it's interesting. And I will go ahead and preface by saying that I just yesterday, I and my wife and my little boy went back down to the antique shop to do a little bit of Christmas shopping. And the owner, Mr. Ardnick, he opened the door for us. It was closed on Sunday, but he told, I, I'm an idiot, and I forgot that he was closed on Sunday. So I'm already driving down the interstate and on the way, and I message him and tell him we're on our way. He's like, no, nah, no biggie deal. Hey, man, we'll, I'll open up for you. So we go down there, and we're down there shopping and stuff like that. And my wife heard the stories of what we're about to talk about, and she uh, wanted to see it. She also wanted to kind of make amends because I think the last time I was there, I made this little creature that we're about to talk about possibly angry with me. Uh, long story, and I'll get into that here in just a few. But she brought an offering of pancakes to it, and we put the pancakes in there, stuff like that. And it was funny that Travis and I and my little boy are up front, and my wife is standing in the back kind of trying to see if she sees it. And for an instant, I think she even says she thinks she saw it. So what is it? So the first time we went, we arrived in the early afternoon in this shop and we talked to Travis, like uh, Teresa said before, kind of the week before trying to get an idea and doing our preliminaries and stuff like that. And this story never came out. So we were completely blank to this when we got there. We knew about the hauntings and stuff like that that they had suggested there. So that's what we were going on. We were not going on encountering something that comes from old Europe, something called an ovnik. So when we get there, we start doing our investigation. We meet with the owner. We kind of go through some stuff. We get some equipment set up, and we are kind of bouncing between the main building 
and in this back storage room that he has that was part of the old hotel. It was actually one of the old hotel rooms that they've converted over to storage. So we're bouncing back and forth between these two rooms. We go outside for a bit, and we had some ins- uh, we had some uh, things happen out there that were kind of interesting, which I can get to later on. But I know the story that we're trying to get to is the old Ovnik, so that's why I'm kind of keeping my direction on. So we come back in from having kind of an odd experience out in this storage room. We come in, and I'm like, after we had the incident that we had out in the storage room. I'm kind of sitting out on the curb out front just trying to like process. I had a headache afterwards because I think something was kind of messing with me a little bit. So I was trying to like get over that and trying to get over this like wave of energy that like smacked me right in the face at that point. So we go back in the main building. We go back in the main building and we're starting to do some preliminary like our sweeps and we're doing some like EMF sweeps and uh, EVP sessions and things of that nature. And we go, and this antique store is split into three main rooms. There is a main front room that has most of the displays and stuff like that. He has a secondary room in the back that is kind of a bleed over. He's got some records and some like glass and stuff like that back there. And then he has an office that also serves as his tarantula room. And as we're going through, we start... He, well, here's how it goes. So he comes to me and he said, I'm looking up and I can see there's these two accesses to his roof. And I'm looking up at those and he says, yeah, I got a critter that lives up there. I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, I got a critter. And I'm like, what is he talking about? He said, yeah, I've got a little buddy that's here. Didn't I mention it to you? And I was like, no. So he says nothing more. He says, but I want you to do so. He say, he takes me and he takes me and takes me over in front of a mirror in this back room. He says, I'll let you see my little buddy. I'm like, okay. Why that's supposed to be so funny? <laughs> I don't know. He takes me and he stands me in front of this mirror. And at the same time, I have James, my audio man, behind me. And we have Brian Martin, another one of our members. And they're kind of going through some boxes of stuff right behind me. And Travis tells me, he says, stand in front of this mirror. And he puts me, physically puts me right in front of this mirror. He says, I just want you to wait here. He says, in this place, the mirrors are fair game. So if you're not experiencing anything, always check the mirrors. Okay, whatever. I'm standing in front of this mirror, and he puts me there for two or three minutes. And nothing's happening. Nothing's happening. I'm watching my guys back here kind of finagle around with some equipment and some of that stuff in these boxes. And all of a sudden, I start seeing this movement in this mirror. I'm looking at the left side of the mirror. It's an old Victor Victrola mirror. I'm looking at the left side of it over towards the old V part of it at the beginning. And I look, and in the right-hand side of the mirror, I'm seeing movement. And it's a it's a small black shadow moving around. I'm like, what is that? I turn my attention to the right side of the mirror just long enough to see what looks like a 12 to 18-inch tall cat monkey thing that is standing on its back legs up on top of a... Um, close rack 
that he has a bunch of cat. He has a bunch of like NASCAR jackets and stuff like that on it for the show. But I'm watching this thing in the mirror, and it's standing above his shoulder on on above my audio man's shoulder, and it's looking at him, and it has little gray, a uh, little green eyes. It has just the hint of little white like teeth poking out of this blackness, and that's all you could see. But it was kind of just like meerkatting over my audio man's shoulder, just checking him out like, hey, who are you? But as soon as I turned around, because I was so damn shocked about what I saw, I turn around and look. And it looks at me at the same time. And it jumps down off of this coat rack. And I could physically see it jump down. It jumps down off this coat rack and scoots as quick as it can across the room. And it's like like running past stuff to get to this chinette cabinet. And you know how those chinette cabinets would have like a compartment underneath where it's just pitch black. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I could see where it went. And I went over to see if I could see it. And I did not see it. It was gone. But for the moment, for that moment, I swear it was like this 12 to 18 inch tall. It wasn't very big at all. But little, it looks like we've got a little black kitten running around here and it looks just like her but it was staring right over his shoulders and it was standing up on its back legs. And it like, it was weird because I knew he didn't have a cat because we checked the property. He did have a dog. He had a dog named Trout and it's a white golden retriever. And it'd be very hard to, to, to mistake a white <laughs> golden retriever for a black cat monkey thing. So, but I knew he had that on a property. So we, I know we, we went a lot of like later on to like check for cat boxes. Cause I was convinced that he had a black cat in this place, but there was none to be found. So later on in the evening, I am back in the back room and I'm like excited by this. I mean, God, who wouldn't be? And apparently I got too excited because Travis told me, Hey, you freaked it out. You need to calm down because he has like a one-on-one connection with this thing. And I'll explain a little bit that, or I'll let Teresa explain that. But we're back there, and he tells me, he says, you need to go in the front room and chill for 15 minutes. I'm like, okay, I'll do it. I went in the front room, and we're kind of looking around at some of the stuff and whatnot, and I just kind of tried to put it out of the back of my mind as best as I could. About 15 or 20 minutes later, Travis comes in and grabs me. He said, you want to try this again? He said, but you have to be nice. I'm like, is he talking about well he takes me back there he said now i want you to be back here and i want you to be nice and i don't want you to yell i don't want you to scream i said he said i want you to stand back here for a little bit so i james and brian once again went back to this back room to just see if we could see this thing and the way the room was laid out it's one big rectangle and at one end, there's a glass cabinet with some old World War II memorabilia and stuff like that on it. On the other end is the access to the office, and he has a current that he draws to block off the office. So Brian and James, my audio man and one of our uh, members, are at the other end of the room. And they're kind of doing some work. And I'm at the other end of the room checking on one of our DVR cameras, or, or actually one of our uh, infrared cameras that we had set up there. And I noticed the things, whatever was in that place, kept draining our batteries like crazy. Well, I noticed that our battery on our, our camera had died. So I was over there replacing it and trying to work on that. I turn around, turn around, pivot all the way around to look, and I see my audio man and Brian standing in the back. 
And I look, and to the left of Brian, just behind him, on this little cabinet that he has back there that has a bunch of 45 records stacked up on it, is this little cat thing, once again. And it's standing there. And I swear, I swore it, it looks just like our little black kitten that we have running around in here. And it's standing up on its back legs, and it's like, paws up like this thing, just like staring at him like, who are you and why you're here? And as soon as you lock your eyes on it, bolts or disappears. It will just wisp away. Now I'll let Teresa pick in. Okay, so while he was having that first sighting of the Avnik, uh, I was out in the motel storage room with some of the other women. And we came in, the other Brian grabbed me and pulled me aside and he's like, he's all excited. He's like, Travis has got this little monkey thing in the back. You've got to see it. And so I already knew that the dog was back there and this whole wall of arachnids and cages. So I was like, he got a monkey back there. He didn't tell me, of course I want to go see it. And he's like, no, no, it's like this cat monkey demon thing. He called it an off name. And I'm like, <laughs> what, what? <laughs> So I was like, okay, well, I, I, I still want to see it. Um, so I went back in the back room by myself and he had an antique couch back there. And so I was sitting on the antique couch, you know, where kind of looking in the same mirror where Brian had seen it. And I was kind of upset because I had, I wasn't seeing it. And I was sitting there. And at one point I thought that I felt like, you know, like a cat or something had jumped on the back of this couch beside of me. But when I looked, there was nothing there. Um, so I kind of like acted out loud. I was like, you know, hey, I, I would really like to see you as well. Um, if you want to show yourself to me, that would be awesome. I'd really appreciate it. And about that time, Travis comes into that room and he's like, have you seen it yet? And I'm like, well, I maybe thought I saw a glimpse of it. Maybe I thought I felt it, but no, I haven't really seen it. And he's like, do you want to see it? And I was like, uh, yeah. <laughs> and he's like, well, come back here. It's right there. And he took me back in the office and he had this, you know, just Rubbermaid storage tote, just you know, full of random stuff. And he's like, it's right there. Do you see it? And I'm like, um, I, I, I don't know. And so I'm staring at the storage tote and we're getting closer and closer to it. And like Brian said, I would have sworn on anything that my own black cat, you know, was sitting in that storage tote. I could see two little green eyes. I could see the white little teeth. And this thing looked me right in the eye and blinked. And so I'm just like staring at this thing and I'm having an existential crisis because like the logical side of me cannot, you know, come to terms with, oh my gosh, I'm seeing this thing. This isn't supposed to be here. This doesn't, this is not supposed to exist. And so I'm staring and staring and he goes to reach into the tote and he moves like a shirt or something, you know, because I was, I, I was still trying to, like, you know, justify it. I was like, well, that, that's like a, you know, a piece of cloth or something in there. Um, even when it blinked at me, I was still like, oh, well, that was just a reflection or something. And as he goes to reach towards the tote, this thing just like dissipates. It completely disappears. And we go through the tote. And of course, there's nothing in there that looks remotely like a little black cat thingy. Mm -hmm. um, and so he asked me, he's like, well, you know, I'm surprised you didn't try to take a picture of it. And I was like, 
I could not have taken a picture of that thing if I tried. I did not have like the mental capacity <laughs> to raise my camera up. And now I know how like Bigfoot witnesses and stuff feel when they're like, uh-huh. well, let me take a picture of it. Like I, I could not move. And I still struggle with what did I see? You know, is this real? You know, was I just imagining this? So the second yeah. time we That's went back. awesome. Yeah. So the second time we went back, we went back with a emphasis on trying to capture this thing or try to see it. And we struggled early on to For a like second, get I a thought second you meant, look like, at actually it. catch it. Oh, no. Um, apparently, and I was like, no. <laughs> according to what I know and what Travis has told me, that would be extremely bad. Um, they yeah. are known to be very defensive, uh, very, um, they can be very harmful. So, and there are some things that happened after the second time that I like honestly wonder if it didn't have something out for us. So, but what I'll tell you is we did it the second time there. We went back with an emphasis to try to see if we could catch it. And we went back in there and we struggled for a while to kind of see it. And then all of a sudden it just seemed like it would just, it started picking up. Uh, Casey and Teresa, I believe were in the back room at one point and she can jump in on this if they, if she remembers it the way I do, but they were, they said they thought they might have heard it walking around in the piano that was in front of them. Is that right, Teresa? Yeah, there was an antique piano, like, I mean, right in front of the couch where we were sitting and, you know, I, referring back to the kitty cat aspects, it sounded like a little kitty cat was just walking across the, you know, the piano. And we both sat there and we're staring at it and we're like, are we really hearing this like tap, tap, tap? And And then later on, we were sitting in there and he has numerous of these old Chinette cabinets with a lot of glassware and crystal and stuff like that in them. And we were sitting there on this antique couch, kind of watching and waiting, and it's all black back there. We're just trying to, like, talk to this thing nicely and whatnot to try to see if it'll come out to talk to us. And it seemed like it started to kind of get comfortable with us because it popped up. And the way it pops up is it almost manifests itself in a way kind of like a, like a, like a, um, <coughs> it reminds me of like a static. And it's a static, like an image. So it will like show up in a place and the image is distorted. You can tell there's something there, but you can't get 100% certain. But it's almost like like a little vapor or something like that moves into an area. And it's a black vapor. But it would go in and it got behind one of the, on one of these cabinets on behind some pieces of china. And in the blackness, all you could see were the little green eyes. And they would kind of appear just a little bit. And they would show up to you. And then they would move. They would move to a different spot. And at one point, it moved to top of the piano. And on the top of the piano, he has a lot of vases and stuff like that. And it would, like, pop up just for a second behind those vases. And you would just see it for a moment. And it would get that distortion. But you could see the little eyes. And you could see this shadow of this thing moving. And yet nobody in there was moving at the time. So you could tell that there was something off. And you could just see it kind of dance around at one point. And then later on in the night, the way the room is laid out, there's a there's a door that connects, an open door that connects the front room and the back room. 
and he has all these mirrors all over the wall. And at one point, I just happened to look up and I looked in one of the mirrors that was reflecting from the other room. And I could see this thing walking across the top of one of his shelves that he had a bunch of um, hockey and stuff memorabilia. And it was just kind of like cruising along, kind of crawling along. It looked like it was crawling like on all fours, kind of creeping around, trying to figure out like what we were doing there. And even like previous time we had been there, the first time we went in to shut all the shut the lights on and to cut off all of our equipment. And we went to turn the lights on and you could hear like tap, 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 a footprints, like little tiny feet running up in the uh, upper floor. And it was like, this thing is actually here. Then kind of the coup de grace to kind of wrap the story of the Ovnik up a little bit for you guys. So as we were getting ready to leave the second time, we were breaking down all of our equipment, stuff like that. All of our DVR cameras are gone, of course, at this point when you absolutely <laughs> need it. Yeah. So we have all of our DVR cameras put up. We are packed up with most of our equipment. We are getting ready essentially to walk out the door within five minutes. And we're up in the front room talking to Travis. Uh, Teresa and I and James are there. Casey has already left at this point, who is our videographer. So it's just the three of us and Travis there at that point. And we're kind of talking to him and kind of making sure we picked up all of our equipment, stuff like that. And all of a sudden in the back room, there was this bang and it was a loud noise. It was like something had been thrown. And I remember locking eyes with Travis, the owner at that point, like, what was that? Because we knew where it was and we knew what was back there. So we walked back to that back room and up on one of these cabinets, he had two blow molds of those old 1970s blow mold pumpkins because it was getting ready to be mm-hmm. a Halloween. It was just a little past Halloween time at that point and so on. So he still had these old blow mold pumpkins up there and he had them up there all evening. No one had messed with them. Nobody had ever got up there and really messed around with any of that stuff. But when we went back there, one of those pumpkins was laying on the ground and it was ro- it was rotating in a circle, which was weird in and of itself. Mm. Well, when we looked at where it was, we had put out an offering assault for the Ovnik. Uh, well, the last time we were there, the Ovnik had asked, or somebody had asked, or I think it was on our uh, Echo Box and stuff like that. The thing kept saying salt, salt, salt. Do you want to give a, a do? And we asked, do you want us to give salt to the Ovnik? And the resounding answer was yes. So we gave an offering of salt. Well, this time we did the same thing. We gave an offering of salt and we put it up on that cabinet. Travis put it up there on that cabinet at the end of the cabinet, probably 20 odd inches away from this pumpkin. He put it up there. This pumpkin had fallen in a way that it had to be lifted up off of the top of this cabinet because it was stuck behind a lip a little bit. So whatever, and if it was to fall forward, it wouldn't have been able to because of physics. But it had to be lifted up out of that channel that it was in. And then to make it even more interesting, below on that cabinet, the cabinet sticks out a bit. It has a main, it's kind of like one of those old uh, cupboards you'd see in a kitchen that has like the tabletop. And he had all kinds of glass on it. Well, this thing was covered with like red and orange and green and blue glass. 
somehow that pumpkin managed to avoid all of that glass on its way down to the ground. If it had just fallen, it would have fallen directly down on all that glass and it would have made a noise and it would have probably broken something. Nothing was broken. Nothing was touched. Everything was fine. And yet that pumpkin was doing this, like rotating on the ground. Well, Travis looked at me. He said, you must have really made the thing mad. And I said, I don't know what I did. Well, I come to think about it. I think I know what it was. So late earlier in the night, we have went. And we went out and all of us went out to eat and stuff like that to kind of get our thought process together about how we were going to approach this the second time around. We went out, we ate, and then we went and we stopped at a gas station locally and picked up some snacks and stuff like that for the evening. And I'm at the point now where I'm trying to kick it, but caffeine was huge for me at that point. So I was needing it, especially for that mid part of the night when everything's starting to drag. So we went and I, I picked up the the little kid's nightmare of an energy drink and gummy bears. Keep me going through the night. I got them and I put them in a bag and we went back to the location and we were starting, we went straight in and we were going to get ready to go directly into our investigation. Go in and I'm pretty sure I have this thing in my hand and I go back and I borrow the key to the back storage unit because that's where we wanted to start because we had to put a camera and stuff like that out there at that point. So I take I take the bag with me and I go to pick up the key from uh, Travis. And I, the way I remembered it, I remember putting the bag next to Travis's fridge in his office. Didn't think any more about it. Went through our investigation throughout the night and then came back in the main building and couldn't find my bag could never figure out where it was and, and was completely floored because I know where I left it. I remember leaving it next to that fridge and yet I couldn't find it. Looked all over the building. I checked the couch. I checked every flat surface that I could possibly with my ADHD self lay it down and couldn't find it. And it was driving me crazy because that is the way my mind works. When I put something somewhere and then I can't find it, I drive myself nuts. And I look all over that building. I've resigned myself to the fact that I'm just going crazy. Later on, we look through our equipment boxes. And here's my bag in one of my equipment boxes. And I know I didn't put it in there. Travis told me he thinks the thing played a trick on me. And apparently I didn't like the trick enough to laugh at it or something like that. And I actually made it mad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's why my wife made pancakes to make up with this thing when we went back the second time. So the Ophnik is was something that nor Teresa nor I had any idea we were walking into. And yet it's probably one of the more strange and more profound experiences that I've ever had in paranormal and doing this for almost 20 years. Yeah. That is an amazing story. Did it accept the pancakes? Have y'all made up? Well, here's where that story of us going back yesterday came in play. So when my wife is back there and she's alone and she's looking for this thing because she wanted to look for it. But at the same time, she was like, I think, really scared of it. So she was kind of like in this like state of do I want to see this or not? But she finally uh, got built up the gumption to do it. And she said at one point she looked. And up on that cabinet at the same place where that pumpkin was and the salt was, we put or Travis put the pancakes up there on a little plate. 
she said at one point it looked like she saw like a cat arch its back up and kind of crawl towards where those pancakes were. And she said at one point she thought she saw its little head poke up for just a minute and its little eyes. I don't know. Well, maybe he accepted the peace offering. Maybe he did. I'll tell you, and it was interesting, and then I'm going to let Teresa kind of jump in on something, whatever, next. Um, it was interesting because the previous the previous time, the second time we went back and leaving under those circumstances, um, it felt strange when I left. It felt like there was this general uneasiness about like having that happen before we left. I mean, it may have been coincidental, obviously. But it was like this strange uneasiness and kind of oddness to it all. Ended up being a wreck on the way home. Hmm. Well, when we went back just yesterday and dropped off the pancakes and stuff like that, it was interesting because the second time or the third time of leaving there, the feeling was much different. It was much more like the pressure was off the shoulders in the previous time. I, I can't explain it. It very well may not be paranormal, obviously, but it is a very interesting little twinge to how the things actually happened. Hmm. That is awesome. It makes me so happy that there's an Avnik in West Virginia. <laughs> Yeah, so we went into this investigation thinking, oh, okay, there there might be some paranormal investigation tied to the location. There might be some paranormal, you know, stuff tied to the stuff that was in the antique store. We weren't expecting Travis's little family guardian demon spirit to make an appearance. <laughs> yeah, that's not the first thing you think of. And of course, yeah. he didn't tell you. Oh, it didn't even come up because I don't, you know, I don't even think that crossed his mind because this is something that he had grown up with. I mean, ever since he was yeah. a small child, you know, yeah. he had been aware of this, you know, familial creature that has, you know, followed his family line from the Slavic region of Europe all the way to the hills of West Virginia. Yeah, it's it's. It's like the thing on the stairs. I don't think to warn people about the thing on the <laughs> stairs. We have a thing in our house mm -hmm. that yeah, is, that lives on our stairs. That most people, if they stay in our house long enough, late enough at night, they'll see it. And it looks like what you're describing—that distortion in the air. Mm -hmm. That's what it looks like. It looks like a gray distortion in the air with little sparks in it. Mm -hmm. um, and it likes to listen to scary stories. Because we'll all get together and like tell ghost stories and talk about like UFOs and stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, the thing on the stairs will come down the stairs and sit and listen. And that's you how... gonna record those. Maybe it'll like you know chime in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be that'd be fun to try. See if Actually, we get an that EVP from thing on the stairs. Hi, Kitty. <laughs> this is our little ovnik right here. This is oh exactly what it looks goodness. like. I this is exactly that. what it looks like. Also, that is a really, really cute cat. Have we interviewed anybody who didn't have a cat? I don't think so. No, not yet. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. There's three of them running around here, so there's a pretty good chance that you'll get one of them on camera. I am <laughs> resisting the urge to show you my dog. And at some point my cat will appear 
and <laughs> the ferrets the ferrets have been surprisingly quiet this recording session. I have two ferrets and I'm right next to their cage. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. And they've been yeah. surprisingly silent. <laughs> well, so th this is the first time you've seen something like a familiar spirit or a um a a fairy or a goblin or something not related to um, ghostly dead activity. Dead people. Yeah. yeah. Non-dead <laughs> human spirits. Yeah. Uh, not on an investigation, but I've I've seen something that I it, it's one of those other things that I still am having that crisis of logic about that I saw one morning in my own front yard. It was what about was it? it was about five a.m. and so it was still you know mostly pretty dark. And I had gotten up early. I couldn't sleep. And I realized that my son had forgot his backpack in my car. So I was like, oh, I got to get out to the car and get that so I can sign his planner and, you know, make sure all his homework and everything is done. So, you know, I put my shoes on, started walking out the front door. And I flipped on the porch light. And I saw this thing. And again, like the logical side of my brain is like, oh, that's just a little bunny rabbit. You know, it's a, you know, there's a lot of bunny rabbits in our yard. But this little bunny rabbit was running on two legs and it looked at me and it looked like a teeny tiny, I mean, we're talking about maybe a foot tall of that little man wearing nothing but a loincloth. Yeah. And yeah. just, just another day in Hurricane West Virginia. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah, just took off running across the sidewalk in front of me and disappeared. And I was like, okay. <laughs> um, that's the only time I ever saw anything like that. But for some reason, our front yard, twice now we found fairy circles in it, like the ring of mushrooms. Yeah. And when my, crazy. Yeah, when my son was little, he was probably about maybe three. Not, you know, we had just moved into this house. And he saw that, and he saw the circle, and he's like, oh, mom, look at that. And he took off running towards it, and he started to, like, jump towards it. And again, you know, this time, the superstitious side completely overruled the logical side, Good. and I grabbed him out of midair and stopped him from going into this yeah, thing. Good. And I'm like, no, don't get in about that. Yeah, that's, that's good. Yeah. Good instincts, mom. Yeah, totally good instinct. <laughs> so are, are you going to tell her about the squirrel? I, I, I might tell her about the squirrel man because that's insane. That sounds real familiar. Yeah. Uh, when I was a little girl, when I was about 12, um, my mom lived in Patasco, Ohio, and there's this big ravine with a creek running in it. And I was crossing a fallen log over the creek barefoot and my mother had been yelling at me because I'd been coming home muddy and wet as only a West Virginia child in a creek <laughs> can come home at, to a level of muddy and wet. <laughs> and so I was trying to be really careful walking across this log and I see movement up on the ravine slope. And out of the corner of my eye, it looks like a squirrel. And then I look closer. I turn and look full force and it's a little man. Oh, well. Wearing like a waistcoat and a green hat with a little feather the size of a squirrel with a squirrel tail and squirrel legs. <laughs> and I made some sort of noise because he looked at me 
And I immediately, for no reason, slipped and fell off the log. (laughs) And then I looked up and he was gone. And I ran home and I'm trying to tell mom about it. And she's like, bullshit, why did you, why are you wet and muddy? Go in the yard. Go in the yard and strip off before you come in the kitchen. Yeah, because I just mopped the the floor. You would not believe me. I believed you after you were clean. After you were not putting muddy footprints on the floor. After that, I did believe you. But before that, no. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I can't ever say that I've had anything quite like that ever happen until the Avnik, obviously. But it was like just such a shock. Because when you do paranormal investigations or whatnot, there's a lot that can show up that doesn't seem to bother me as much. But that bothered me because I was like, am I losing my mind? It's possible. But I know what I saw. And I know that uh, even Travis yesterday, after my wife said she saw it, he said, well, we're up to about two dozen people that have seen it. And he even told a story in a video that we did here recently. And it's interesting that he says it's kind of a blanket thing where the Avnik and his family will protect like family friends or deal with family friends. And he mentioned that this story of a buddy of his that was going to commit suicide. And the only thing that stopped it was that this buddy who doesn't have any pets saw a black cat paw reach up underneath his door and scratch under the door as he was getting ready to do it. And that stopped him. And he said at that point, he said, apparently whatever it was got it, got his attention. But I've never had anything like that, and it was it was just kind of interesting. And it's, that's a and Travis was a real couth about it, and he'll tell you point blank. He said, "Look, I'm used to seeing this stuff. I spend hours and hours and hours about in the woods, and I think I'm pretty aware of my surroundings." And he said, "If you want to go out and see more of this stuff like that, come with me. I'll t- I'll take you." So. I may take him up on his offer because I'd be kind of interested to see what all is out there. But that was something completely different to what I'm normally accustomed to with these things. Yeah. I think you should take him up on it. Yeah, very well, May. I think you should too. I mean, I've seen weird stuff in the woods like that, similar stuff, like Mm -hmm. since I was a little kid. Yeah. Um, And sometimes I think that if people can see things sometimes that can extend to other people that are with them, mm-hmm. like a field that sort of encircles the other person and it mm-hmm. helps them see stuff. Yeah. Um, and that's, I, I think that's probably what Travis does. He may be. Uh, he seems to be very aware of what's going on around him at all times. Yeah. Yeah. He sounds, he sounds awesome. He is. He he is a very, very, very nice guy, and he's one hell of a storyteller, truly. He can tell you stories about, um, he has a really famous one that Teresa took a video of, uh, if you check it out on YouTube or whatever, under her page. It's the story of the haunted hat, and he tells this story of running into what he believes was a cowboy spirit from back in the 1800s. And the only thing that was left by the end of it was just his hat that he is now, according to Travis, what Travis is doing. He is a buddy at the University of Tennessee that is going to be carbon dating the hat 
to see if he can figure out how old it is. But you can tell it's one of those old hand-stitched or old machine-stitched, not like a modern machine. Right. And he said that the buddy of his is pretty convinced that the cow species that the leather hat is made out of doesn't even exist and doesn't hasn't existed since the 20s. Wow. wow. Okay. That's so, awesome. He said he would keep me posted on that, but that's an interesting little thing that he told me yesterday. That is fascinating. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Did he say what, what the species of cow was? He didn't mention it offhand, um, but I can always uh, later on, if you want, I can find out. Yeah. Old farm girl here is like, <laughs> what kind of cow was mm-hmm. it? He said that it was, was a species that went out in the 20s. Okay, I'll look it up and see what I can find out because mm-hmm. there can't, you know, be that many that went extinct. Yeah, in the 1920s. I don't know. There might be a lot that went extinct. Factory farming was getting started around then. That's true. Yeah, that was in the heyday Most of the of Chicago that. killing fields. And yeah, stuff. yeah. The jungle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good old Upton Sinclair. Oh yes. <laughs> Putting people off their food for 50, 60 years Well, he should have. He should have, yeah. He I'm not saying more people vegan than any other <laughs> organization. Yeah, I'm just saying. I'll never forget when we read it in high school and my friend was like, why are they making me read this? <laughs> this is terrible. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that's why they're making you read this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, do you all have anything else to say? We've been we've been going for about an hour and a half. I mean, I y'all are entertaining. I am good for what if you all have any more questions, by all means, like anything else that you all want to ask is fine. I've got plenty of time. Uh, I don't know about Teresa, but Teresa's kind of a night owl like me. So it's just kind of at this point. But one of the things talk all day long. <laughs> I love it. And that's the thing that is so lost in it is we do legitimately love it and we enjoy doing it. I enjoy doing these podcasts because I enjoy letting people know about some of these things and stuff like that, that they, I mean, people probably think I'm nuts and that's okay. I probably am to some degree. I think we all are, but that being said, you know, I like sharing these stories. I'm part of like being a historian is being a storyteller. And it's something that I've always like gravitated to do. That's one thing I like doing with my kids in school is like, I don't put textbooks out in front of them and tell them to do vocab and answer the questions at the end of the chapter. I like relaying stories. I like being able to relay the stories about why these things matter to them and how do they reflect to today and how are they still, how, what are the echoes still today? How did it get there? How do we get to where we are now? And where are the kind of connections in between? That's the kind of stuff I love to do. And part of paranormal is the storytelling aspect. And that's the, that's the most fun is being able to sit down with folks like you all and tell stuff that probably makes me sound like a nut talking about the Ovnik in Deep End Antiques in Beckley, West Virginia. But I don't care because I like it. Um, <laughs> we don't think that's. <laughs> no, no, you're no worse than we are. So. <laughs> I mean, we have had like, we did some stuff at the, um, I don't know if you all are interested in this one, but we did a fairly recent um, investigation back in July of a place down in Williamson of the old hospital on College Hill. 
And Teresa and I can both kind of tag team this one as well. Because I like giving a lot of these folks that have worked with us pretty closely some shout outs as well. Because it's good for us, it's good for them, and it's also good for just the field in general. But um, the old hospital on College Hill is one that we really have, um, we hit it twice in the past five months. And it is a wild, wild place. And I know that Teresa mentioned earlier, we have a guy that has been, he's kind of become a de facto SRI member. He is uh, Zachary uh, Schwartz that writes for Counter Magazine. And he has done articles for like Playboy and a couple other groups as well. And he wanted to, he approached Teresa and I through finding Teresa's blog on, um, he wanted to do an article on paranormal investigation. So he called me out of the blue and it was this random Ohio number from like Cleveland. And I'm like, who is calling me from Cleveland? But you know what? <laughs> I picked up the phone and I said, you know what? Maybe... I was in Cleveland when that shit went down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, well, whatever. I'll, I'll pick it up and see. Well, he answer, uh, He talks to me and he tells me that he's interested in doing an article on paranormal investigation. I, I told him, I said, look, I will share some information and stuff with you and whatnot. He said, well, I'd actually like to see if you would um, have me along on one of your investigations. I'm like, yeah, fine, whatever. I don't have anything to hide. Whatever, come along. It'll inform somebody on how we do this. So he actually has done a couple investigations with us. He did the Heyman House up in Sutton. That was his first kind of initiation into paranormal investigation. And then the second, the one, the next one he did was actually the old hospital in College Hill. And it was interesting because he, I think he had went to a buddy's like bachelor party or something like that. And they did like this big long hike beforehand. So he had, mar he had like hiked through the woods for days beforehand, came back with blisters on his feet and everything like that and had to come to this investigation with us and arrive late in the evening. So he goes in and this old hospital we're talking about was built in the late 1920s. Uh, has been closed since the 90s as a hospital and was functioning up until I think 2014 or 2008 or something like that as like doctor's offices on the lower floor. But it's been abandoned for many, many years. And the reports coming out of the place um, have only started here fairly recently. Teresa can kind of attest to this as well. But it's kind of a newbie on terms of the uh, paranormal circuit here in the state of West Virginia. Teresa, do you want to kick in a little bit of information on it? Uh, yeah. Um, you know, like Brian just said, th this location is like quickly becoming the next Trans-Allegheny or West Virginia State Penitentiary. Uh, the new owners just purchased it last year. And early 2021 is when they opened it up to the public for investigations. Um, and they had, what was it, Destination Fear came in, the investigation there. Uh, it's this beautiful old, like, hospital building. And then it's got the nurses' college that's right beside of it. Um, that's still being renovated, so we can't get into the nurses' college. But the hospital itself, um, you know, it's just quickly has really been investigated like i mean they i think they've been booked like every single weekend since they opened up for uh private and public investigations um so a couple of the stories that they have published on their website and that you know other groups have talked about 
Uh, one of the famous stories is they have the ghost of a nurse that they've seen there. Uh, like the past couple of years before the owners really purchased it and opened it up for investigation, they ran it during Halloween as a Halloween haunted house attraction. And so that's where the reports of it being haunted kind of really started. The actors that were working at the haunted house started seeing stuff. Mm -hmm. And one of the things they would see um, was a nurse that she was seen in various, you know, areas of the hospital down in the basement area where the x-ray machines are. Um, They'd see her there. There's a story that somebody took a picture and the picture's on their website. And it, it does look like the image of a nurse, like right outside the building, mm-hmm. going on the walkway towards the old nurses' college. Uh, there was a story that came out that while it was still open as a hospital, this pregnant woman was on the labor and delivery floor. She said a nurse in an old timey uniform walked in, told her that oh, you're not going to be having the baby today. You might as well go ahead and go home. Well, she started getting dressed and packing her stuff up to leave. And this other nurse came in. She's like, whoa, where are you going? You know, you're you're in active labor. You can't leave. And she's like, well, the other nurse told me the baby wasn't coming today so I could go ahead and go. And she's like, there's no other nurse on this floor working here. Um, so the story, you know, that they tell about it and um, that was told, it was that this nurse had been on her way to her shift in the ER gotten into a car crash and passed away in her own ER that she worked at and she stuck around. Um, There's another popular story that it was in the 1960s, I believe Um, a man named Mose Blackburn had gotten into a fight with his wife. The police were called, ended up in a shootout where he shot a cop. Um, The cop, also was able to shoot him and injure him. They were both taken to the hospital. Uh, The cop passed away. The man lived, but he was under constant supervision. And the story goes that, you know, there was a officer in his room at all times keeping tabs on him and he was getting ready to be arraigned the following Monday. And so that weekend, he asked the cop that was watching him in his room, hey, you know, can you go get me a drink of water? They say the guy left the room and Mose ran out of the room and threw himself out the third story window. He survived for now, <laughs> um, but he had injured himself to the point where he had passed away. I think it was about a month later he had passed away from his injury. And stories abound that the ghost threw him out the window or the ghost scared him out the window, you know, stuff like that. But I mean, there's, there's been all kinds of stories and when we did the historical research, we kind of found some things that back some things up, found some other things that maybe weren't, you know, maybe where the stories had originated from. Um, But then there's all kinds of things that happened that, weren't documented (laughs) and we had some really interesting things going on and Brian can tell you about his experience (laughs) that he and Zach had. So when we got, we were going through the night, even when we were doing our initial setup, um, James and I, our our audio man went down to the basement level, the, the hospitals and four floors. You've got, the basement level up to the absolute top, which was the old pharmacy and the old surgical wings and stuff like that. 
And we were down in the basement level while the girls, Teresa, Casey, and Bree, I believe were up on the fourth floor at this point. And we were kind of going through and I was showing James some things. Uh, he's fairly new at doing this. So I was teaching him some things and also like showing him how I would set up equipment, stuff like that to cover this big hallway that was down in the basement. And he and I were down there and it was probably six or seven in the evening. So there's still a little bit of light coming in the building at that time, but not much. And it's almost pitch black down there. And there is no electricity at all on the basement level of this building. There's no water pressure or anything like that as well. So as James and I are talking, we kind of turn around to get ready to head up the stairs. And as we get ready to turn around and head up the stairs, the basement is split up into like a wing that was where the old maintenance and like the old switchboard for the hospital and all was on one side. And it goes down to where like the children's uh, rooms were and they had like x-ray and stuff like that in the back. And as he and I turn to go towards the stairs and go up, down this hallway that the maintenance wing was, which is also where their incinerator and stuff like that, which has a whole host of stories with it as well. Supposedly, like, dismembered bodies were burned in the uh, incinerators in the facility and stuff like that. Um, don't know if that really happened or not. That could be a cool story. It may happen. I don't know. But down that wing, as we were getting ready to go up the stairs, you heard, like, this old man. And it was like an old man that was distorted in a way that you could hear his voice and you could hear it echo. And it was interesting because when you walk down that wing, you can hear the way your voice reverberates off of like the brick walls of the old part of the hospital. We're talking 1920s uh, archway brick uh, walls and stuff like that. And you know that sound. When you go back there, you know that sound and the way your sound reverberates off of it. So when we were getting ready to go up the stairs you could like hear this old man like yelling down that hallway and it was something like distorted. You couldn't tell what he was saying, but I turned and I looked at my audio man who's still fairly new at this. And I was like, did you hear that? He's like, yeah, that was an old man. That was early on when we were just getting our initial setup. up. We had all kinds of stuff happen throughout the night in there, but the most profound thing that we had happen in that facility and probably the most profound and almost like alarming thing I've had happen in the time that I have done any type of paranormal investigating. So we are all upstairs in the fourth floor in the pharmacy area. And the pharmacy area is basically just a box that has one door in, one door out. There is a bat flying around and I am petrified of rabies. That is one of my pet fears is rabies. And I'm down on the ground and I'm trying to stay out of this thing because I still want to investigate, but I'm scared to death. But we're all up there and it's like 3, 3.30 in the morning and it is pitch black in this place. Quiet. Not hardly a sound. And we're all upstairs and it's kind of late in the evening, so we're all getting tired and we're just kind of laying down, chilling out on the floor. And I have my audio man, I have Zach with us. We have Teresa and we have Bree that are all in this pharmacy and we're all stuck up kind of against the back wall. And the room is probably 20 feet deep or something like that. And it's got one single big doorway. And there's kind of a ramp that runs up to the doorway. So as we're sitting there in the evening, uh, we have a couple parabolic mics that we were using. And I know that Teresa and James and them had numerous times, and I'll let her kind of chime in what she heard because I didn't hear it. 
because I didn't have that. I didn't have it with me at the time. But they reported that they started hearing like a little girl, like yelling for her daddy. I'll let Teresa pick it in that real quick. Yeah, so James was the first one to notice it. And he was using the parabolic mic. And he's like, I hear a little girl crying. And it was coming from outside of the pharmacy room that we were in. Mm -hmm. And the fourth floor where we were at, there wasn't any real like solid ghost stories attached to it, but we were told that when the cleaning crew used to work there, they would not stay there after dark. There mm -hmm. was something in there that scared them so bad that they would just not stay in there. Mm -hmm. So he got kind of freaked out and he's like, okay, I don't think I want to listen to this. I was like, well, give it to me. I want to hear it. So I tried to get like closer to the doorway to see how, you know, if I could pick up the noises better and standing in the doorway, I could hear, I mean, it sounded exactly like a little girl kind of, you know, whimpering, saying, daddy, daddy. And I was like, okay, that's really weird. And that was just kind of like the kickoff of this, you know, the stuff. That this started. encounter here. Um, so go ahead, Teresa. Oh, okay. Well, before they had their encounter, you know, we, we, it was Bree who had her Echo Vox app thing on and it was saying some weird things, but the thing that I remember was the weirdest was it said my name. Um, you know, it typed it out on the, the readout, Teresa spelled correctly, <laughs> which is weird because most people don't spell their name with an H like I do. So I was like, okay, that's really weird that it said my name. So we had been kind of like, you know, lazing around. I mean, it was late in the night. We were kind of laying on the floor and then all this stuff started happening like at once. And we could kind of, feel and see this like shadowy form keep coming towards that doorway like it was playing with us like it would kind of come towards the doorway and kind of like peek in and it would block the light in a certain way and things just kept escalating until brian and zach had their experience so as we're up there as like Teresa mentioned the sounds that we heard they were distant. You could hear them down the hallways and stuff like that. And on either end of this hallway were the surgical wards. And you could hear these sounds like seemingly coming from down those surgical wards. And you could never really isolate what they were. And we had been in there numerous times in that backside. So we knew we're reasonably sure there weren't any animals or anything like that in there. So we're doing this and we're listening. And the sound seems like it comes closer and it retracts, it comes closer and it retracts. And like she said, there was like this shadowy form that like seemed to come up to the, uh, the pharmacy door, but it didn't seem like it wanted to cross the threshold. For whatever reason, it was not going to come across there. But you could physically see like there was moonlight that night and you could see the moonlight coming in the windows from that hallway. And at times it would go completely blacked out. So you knew there was something there, even though we couldn't see it physically. Well, as at one point, Zach being fairly new to this and all that, he is makes probably what we could consider for paranormal uh, investigators a rookie mistake. He challenges it. He says, mm. I want you to scare me. Well, it does. <laughs> so he says, I want you to or I, I want you to scare me. And he's sitting kind of just up in front of me, a couple feet in front of me. He's down on uh, like kickback like this. And we're just all watching this doorway. 
about that time, it felt like you could feel like this pulse of energy, like just rush up into that room that we were in. And we all, Teresa, all of us kind of encountered this. We felt it. You could feel like something closed in, like, okay, you want to mess with me? I got you. So it like pushed its way into the room. And as we're sitting there in the dark, and Zach and I both react at the same time, in that blackness, that shadow is completely taken over this doorway. But in that blackness, there starts like a little tinge of light. And it kind of appears just off the side of the doorway like this. It's small, but it grows. And it's in the shape of a human head. And it peeks around the side of the door. And there were no features on it. But it was like a pinkish orange color. And it it's like caught Zach and I at the exact same time because Zach was scared to death. And he crab walks back over James <laughs> and I in the process and crab walks back to the wall to get with us because it scared him so bad. And it startled me because I saw it happen. And he and I, I looked at him and I was like, did you just see that too? And we, and I described it and he's like, dude, that is exactly it. It, it looked like this like pinkish orange light that looked like a head with no features kind of peeked around the door. And as soon as it did that, it was gone. That like blackness kind of receded and it was like, it's like, okay, I got what I wanted and it just kind of vanished. So we went back downstairs after that. We're scared to death after that point. It's we're tired and everything else. And we go to the safe house area on the second floor, go into the safe house. And we're kind of in there trying to get our thoughts about us. and like trying to process what we just saw. We decided to go back up to the third floor to the Moe's hallway and as I turn out of the safe house, Teresa and Bree are still in the safe house area. James is with me just behind me. And we're getting ready to go up the stairs to the third floor. And so right as soon as you turn up the, out of the, the room, we start going up these stairs. And as I turn, there is a woman humming. And she's like, hmm, 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 like this, like he humming in my ear. And it was like she was standing right there in the hallway next to me. Immediately, my reaction was Teresa or Bree was humming. So I asked them, I was like, are you all humming? And they were like, no, we, we're still back here. So, and there was no way that the sound that they projected would have even hit me the same way as it was. But as we started going up the stairs, you could hear the humming in the distance. And we could never isolate it. But it was like this lady was just kind of floating up and down the stairways. And she just got right in my ear and she hummed. That was another. And then um, one more thing from this location. Teresa and I remember this real distinctly. Um, we are on the fourth floor, once again, where the pharmacy is, but we are in the doorway that separates the two hallways. And Teresa had what I would call a reaction to something that was happening. I'll let her explain that. Um, so, yeah, we, we started out we were sitting, you know, kind of similar to where we were the first time in the pharmacy. And, you know, I'm just sitting there, you know, everything's normal. We're kind of looking and we we're kind of seeing that same thing we were seeing before, like, you know, the, the, the shadowy movement kind of blocking out, you know, the, the light. 
and all of a sudden I just felt kind of sick and I was like huh I'm not I'm not feeling too good and I'm like oh I'm okay it's no big deal and it got to the point where I was like oh man I'm really not feeling good I'm really super dizzy I better go back down you know to the safe room area and get me something to drink and kind of chill out for a minute and so I stood up and I honestly like I don't even remember everything that happened because about that time I started going into like a major major panic attack and it didn't feel like a normal panic attack it felt like I was feeling somebody else's panic through me mm-hmm. and I mean it it was bad mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean and it, it was I think it got to the point because it was me and Brian up there and then Casey and her fiance mm-hmm. were up there and was it then that they were hearing the voices yes or something something yeah they had been hearing voices and i think the voices combined with all of a sudden me going into this massive panic attack for no reason they left yeah <laughs> they, they, left. <laughs> they left they left so we could get to use some help i remember yeah um so i was like I, I, i'm okay just let, let me ride this you know panic attack out and uh so I, you know after that i felt like okay well i'm, I'm going to confront this and so i went to the other side <laughs> where the cameras you know were kind of facing i was like well whatever's here i think is down on this side mm-hmm. and so i think james had come up at that point too and joined yeah. us and so the three of us went out into the hallway yeah. and started seeing some really weird stuff. Yeah. So when James got up there, we were, our first priority was Teresa because I had not witnessed like that type of behavioral swing ever like doing this, but it was like, it was generally alarming and I didn't know like really how to react because she was hyperventilating and stuff like that. And it was like, it was honestly kind of terrifying. But she kind of calmed down a little bit and we went out into the hallway with her and sat. And like as we were sitting in there, and this is one of the scariest things that in general I've ever seen doing this. Um, you could see down the hallway towards the surgical wings, there were these shadows that were moving between the different doors. And it was like one door on one side, one to the other. And it seemed like it would rush across one side, hit across another, move, kind of bounce back and forth. It seemed like it would bounce Mm. closer and then bounce further away. And it kept doing it. But at times it escalated further when you would see like these bright white eyes, which Mm. from your all's time with paranormal, you know, like how bad of a sign like the bright white eyes are when it comes to spirits and that like kept looking at us and it kept like poking his head out and like kind of looking at us with these just bright, shiny, no feature white eyes. And like, that's bad. Yeah. And we like James and I like were legitimately concerned at that point because you could see it like trying to come up to us 
and you could see like these white featureless eyes and stuff like that just kind of poke out and it would like it just moved in such a strange way that you knew it wasn't like a raccoon or something like that in the building because it would like bounce and it would just kind of like shift in a way that didn't make any kind of sense physically for how anything living would move. Right. It kind of kept getting closer and closer. And that was right around the same time. I don't know if that's what Teresa was experiencing, but that was alarming. Very, very alarming. Oh yeah. No, that's not good. Yeah. That was one of the few times that I've ever felt legitimate like fear on an investigation. Mm -hmm. And if it wasn't for the two of them in that hallway with me, I would have not stuck around by myself. Mm -hmm. But you know, I had them with me. So I was I was fascinated by, you know, this like you said, these white eyes would just peek out of these doors mm -hmm. and it seemed like it wanted to try to come at us, but something was stopping it from getting too close. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That, mm. Yeah. That doesn't sound like fun. The white well, I mean, eyes does, are the thing. The white eyes are the thing that really caught me off guard. I'm like, this is not good. This is different. Um, yeah, I can even deal with like red eyes. I can deal with blue. I can deal with green. But the white eyes, like from what we know with like dealing with paranormal stuff and whatnot, they are not a good sign when it comes to like manifestations of bad. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't approve of white eyes. That's not, that's not good. No, no, no. And, and Morgana was definitely like, oh, well, that's time to go. It, yeah, no, my my status uh, or my my what's it called? My policy. Um, mom is the brave one. I like to say she's the dumb one <laughs> because she will walk towards the creepy portal or the white eyes or anything else. No, white eyes happen. I'm like, mm, nope, time to go. Let's go. Come on. Come on. Cowardice is a survival strategy. Let's go, guys. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. That, we've had in our short time of kind of doing this, we've had quite a few like really profound experiences and I hope that it continues because we've had some really enlightening, really cool, not your run of a mill paranormal stuff. I hope my hope is to be able to, even with our, our experiences, I really hope to like get that kind of that some form of evidence to really kind of push this forward. Cause that's ultimately what this is about is trying to push this field forward and trying to expand the fact that people are trying to do this the right way. And that's the goal is to hopefully one of these days be able to get enough of this stuff together and get enough evidence to like really make a kick. So we're going to keep at it. Um, I'm hoping we get some more stuff and we're coming up on a new year here with a lot of new possibilities. So we'll see what happens. I Sounds wish good. you all the luck. Yeah, definitely. Stay away from those wide eyed, whatever they are. Nah, I didn't like that. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> like that. No, the, I think we're no. united in nope. On that. Ah. Yeah, that's a, when that's I made of nope. It was bad enough when Teresa starts freaking out, but when I start seeing little uh, little black shadows with white eyes, it's a little bit scary. That's a little bit more than yeah. you know, your typical oh little 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 Timmy ghosts. Like it it looked like on honestly, it looked like 
the scenes from the first The Conjuring with the little kid with the like bright white oh, eyes and stuff like man. that. Yeah, it looked like that kind of stuff, and that's like this is horror movie stuff, and that never goes well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's that's the one where the danger music starts. You know, when the white eyes show up, the danger music will be next, and that's yeah. it. You're done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I had a great time talking with y'all, and you're welcome to come back anytime. Yeah, you really are. Because I had a great time. I am sure that we could come up with something to something to talk about. Absolutely. Um, I do find it really, really interesting. Your um emphasis on history and stories and the paranormal is all connected together. It's all about story and narrative. And I think that is the key to human understanding is understanding stories. That's what builds our empathy. That's what builds our curiosity, Mm -hmm. you know, and it keeps us, it keeps us humane and human you know, and I th- I like that you guys don't poke at the ghosts except for that one guy. You know? <laughs> he learned. He learned. He learned crap. very he quickly. <laughs> he won't do that again. That scared him. I'll tell you what. That scared him so badly, guys, that after that, he slept in his car the rest of the night. He would not come back in the building. Oh, poor guy. He, he, he would not. I come mean, he back brought in. it on himself, but yeah. like, still, yeah, he did. yeah, he said, I want you to scare me. Well, it did. Yeah. Wow. Oh Lord. But yeah, that's generally without, with that one exception, you guys have been doing it in the humane, careful, respectful way. And I think that's really important. And, uh, Teresa, you write an amazing blog. Keep it up. I think, I think it's a great resource for people. I think it's a, I think it's a, it's it's great advertising for y'all because it it's the stories are fascinating and you you write them really really well. Yes. Oh, thank you. I had a great time doing it. Thank you. Well, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you on the internet? And uh, so, Teresa, you start. Um, okay, so if you just want to contact Teresa's Haunted History of the Tri-State. Um, you can just search for, that's the easiest way to get to the website itself. I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all under, uh, Teresa's Haunted History. Excellent. And where can we find SRI? So if you go on to Facebook or Instagram, or, um, we have a TikTok that we haven't really launched yet and we have a YouTube channel, stuff like that. But if you look for Spectral Research and Investigation, you can find us through social media. We also have SRIHuntingtonWV.com, which is our website. We have a blog on there that I kind of have taken over since Teresa's busy with her blog. I've kind of taken over and started writing some blog articles on there. Uh, but you can access anything with ours. We try to keep uh, fairly evenly uh, distributed in terms of uh, keeping updates on there. So, and then we have our Gmail account, which is srihuntingtonwv at gmail.com. Anybody can get a hold of us, can get a hold of me through Facebook, Brian Clary as well. Uh, we're pretty easy to get a hold of. And there you go. All right. Well, thank you very much. And again, you guys are welcome back at any time. 
Absolutely. When you when you ever want to have us, just let all us right. know. Well, that's all for this week's episode of the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. If you have any questions or thoughts about the podcast or would like to come and talk about your experiences of the paranormal, you can contact us at 6djk67 at gmail.com. We promise to even answer you, and we are always happy to hear from you. Thank you. (laughs) 